Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Um, during the Christmas season, we're looking into um, the letter to the Philippians. So if you've got your Bible, open it up to Philippians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to this young church in Philippi, which is a Roman colony, right? And so this church believes this message that Jesus, not Caesar, is the one true God. And naturally, because they believe that, they were now the outsider in their community, right? They're kind of living on the fringe. And what Paul's trying to do in this letter is show this young church what real joy, what real joy looks like and how it can sustain them as they live on the fringes of society now. This week, Paul's going to get pretty personal with us. Now, last week, chapter two, that was uh, the process of, or I should say two weeks ago, the huge snow we all suffered through here. Um, it cost us to not be able to be here last week. But um, two weeks ago, uh, we looked at kind of how, uh, what, what the process looks like of being changed by joy in Christ. Today, Paul's going to talk about his own story and what he's going to talk about and the theme that's going to run through it that I want to bring out today. Title of our sermon today is The Cost of Joy. And here's why this is so big, y'all. He is writing from a place of suffering. He was wrongly imprisoned. He's writing to people that are regularly being imprisoned and ostracized for their faith. They were not living and he was not living his best life now by any stretch of the imagination. And yet he has peace and even joy as he writes. And this is big, y'all, because the reason many, I think, struggle living the Christian life is because they don't have a theology of suffering. Joy comes at a cost. And this may be one of the greatest misses in the American church today. Because bad stuff comes at us and we throw our hands up. What's up with this, God? Why aren't you holding up your end of the deal? Right? I, I, I've done what you tell me to do. I've been pretty good at it. Why is this stuff coming at me? Why aren't you keeping up your end? And Paul could have said that. <laughs> he was a better Christian than us. Okay? You read these, read these letters. He could have said that, but... Instead, he says like the complete opposite. By the end of this, you're going to see Paul being thankful for suffering, like wanting more of it almost. And we need to see what's up with that. He's going to get personal with us. He's going to show us his resume, his like spiritual resume. And he's going to talk about the things inside of that resume that used to make him feel secure. That's what a resume does, right? It gives a sense of approval. And he's going to show us why those things don't do it anymore. He's going to talk about how he found something a whole lot better than those things. This might be the most important sermon in this series in Philippians. It's definitely going to be the most uncomfortable. Because he's going to say there is great joy in following Jesus. And he's going to say, here's what it costs me to experience that joy. And it's uncomfortable because it's going to cause you and I to say, 
Do we have this same kind of joy Paul's talking about? So we're going to look at what Paul says the cost of joy is, and then we're going to just evaluate ourselves in light of that, all right? Um, so let's jump into it. Verse one, you ready? All right, if anybody else beyond the first two rows wants to engage, good. It's God's word. There's good stuff in here. Let's go. Verse one, in addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me, and it's a safeguard for you. This is Paul's anthem in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord. And he says it's a safeguard. Now, we don't normally think of rejoicing, celebrating as a safeguard like a protective measure, right? We think of it rejoicing as like celebrating a response to something great that's happened. Like UNC throws down on Gonzaga last night and we celebrate. Or when the Panthers um, dominate the Saints tomorrow night, right? We're going to celebrate that. And yes, I will go with you. I know you have that extra ticket. I'm, I'll go, okay? All right, but look, that, that's what we think about. But Paul says, no, that rejoicing it's actually going to work in a little bit of a defensive measure. It's going to be a safeguard. He's appealing to them to rejoice because regular rejoicing has a way of training the soul. Here's a way I'll give you kind of a working definition. So when you walk away from here, you got something to think about. What does it mean to rejoice? Rejoicing is celebrating God, the gospel, and God's work in the lives of others, the work of God and others. All right, that, that's what rejoicing is. It's celebrating God, just his character, his goodness, who he is. It's celebrating the gospel, what he has done for us. And it's celebrating the, the fruit of the work of God in the lives of others and how you're seeing God through other people. And rejoicing regularly in Christ and in his work, it trains your soul to start to respond to the different situations in life to respond the way you actually were always meant to respond. That no matter what comes at you, you respond to it rejoicing in the Lord. It's kind of like, just like constant bicep curls, I'm told, builds muscle memory, right? Same way, consistent rejoicing builds soul memory, right? Paul was always rejoicing. He said in chapter two, you can read towards the end of chapter two, he said, listen, even if I suffer and die, if I'm doing that so that your faith can increase the work of God and others, I'll rejoice in it. Rejoicing in Christ says I'm going to put my hope in something that will never be consumed. So yes, his circumstances are bleak. They're not good. He doesn't know if he's ever going to make it out, but he's not mad at God about his circumstances. He's actually thankful for them. He's rejoicing. You see, how you think about God in hard times will reveal if you're actually getting the gospel. Paul didn't just have intellectual assurance, right, that one day when he died, he would be with God in heaven. He had that, but he had so much more. He had soul-strengthening joy in the middle of his suffering. He knew the joy of Nehemiah, who looked out on God's people Right, as Nehemiah 8 looks out on God's people and says, they're like, they're weeping and they're crying because of the situation. And he says, stop weeping, stop crying. No, why? You need to rejoice because the joy of the Lord is where your strength is. And maybe the running question underneath everything I have for you today is, do you have that joy? That's why I wanted to focus on joy 
this Christmas. Because I think our familiarity with the word joy causes us to miss the power that the Bible, that the Bible puts behind it. Right? Like you think about the word joy, it's in a whole bunch of different product lines. Right? You got foot joy, almond joy. Uh, my family's into the essential oil thing. Don't knock it to you. Try it. All right. But there's a um, there's an oil called joy, and I'm like, okay, that's a little far. All right, it just makes it smell good. But um, you got like um, there's a Hallmark Christmas movie, and it's called Christmas Joy, right? And I hadn't seen it, but I'm sure what's gonna happen, right? The girl who is dating the preppy finance guy leaves him for the lumberjack, right? That lives nearby. <laughs> And I don't know why the preppy finance guy is always named Spencer in these Hallmark movies, but enough is enough, right? And I promise I will stop knocking Hallmark Christmas movies as soon as they go off, okay? As soon as they're done, then I'm done. Uh, but look, we, we know, so we kind of know, all right, well, obviously those things aren't real joy, but they kind of work to create a fog around us that makes it difficult. And I wonder, do we actually know what true soul strengthening joy is, and do we know how to find it? So here's the definition I'm going to give you for joy today. Joy, that I think this is what comes out with Paul, is spiritual buoyancy that comes from constantly rejoicing in God. Spiritual buoyancy. You know what buoyancy means? It's, it's science, right? For like what happens when something goes under the water and then pops back up, like when you're bobbing for apples, the apple goes down and then bloop. Comes back up, right? That's the joy that's available to you in Christ. Christians, just like everybody else, are going to suffer, right? In fact, Christ guarantees that Christians will suffer, but he says we are unsinkable when we get pushed down. And that buoyancy starts to grow stronger the more we train ourselves to rejoice in God, the gospel, and his work in others. It's soul memory, Right? Having joy doesn't mean you don't suffer. It just means you're not consumed. You don't sink as a result of your suffering. Because we know Romans 8 to be true. Right? What can separate me from the love of God? What can drown my soul? Paul says, nothing. And he starts listing things. Some of the things that he's dealt with. Right? He's talking about danger, about poverty, his past, job loss, physical pain, all of these things, nothing can separate him from the love of Christ. Because when they push him down, Christ, because he's clinging to him, bloop, will bring him back up. His love can, and some of you need to hear today, his love will float you. Church, we should be experts in joy. We should be, but we're not. And the reason often that we're not is because we're our peace and our joy are more tied to our circumstances than they are to God. So when someone gets a promotion over you, you suffer spiritually, right? When you reach a certain age that you think you should be married by and you're not, you suffer spiritually, right? You don't grow closer to God. You, you kind of try and soldier through it. Maybe you're trying to have a child and you try for a year and you're not able to have a child and you, you suffer spiritually, Listen, I'm not saying those times aren't hard. In fact, I'm saying they are hard. I mean, that's kind of Paul's point, I think. I mean, I think about the year Courtney and I spent not able to have a child. And then three years later, after having two, we get pregnant and we have a miscarriage. And I think about this year and losing her dad. I mean, these are, I'm not saying any of that's easy. This is deep suffering 
that we go through. What I'm saying is that as Christians, we have the opportunity to lean, instead of building a wall up where we're mad at God because of our suffering, we have the opportunity to throw ourselves at the feet of God. And we may not call it joy in the moment, we might call it comfort, but the strength of God, the power of his Holy Spirit will actually lift us and carry us through incredible suffering and you will actually come to know God more as a result of it. You will be strengthened in Christian joy in a very unique and powerful way. The problem is, most of us have just never, never worked those muscles. So we focus on blessings instead of the blesser. And when the blessings get removed, when the hard times come, we often sink. I was thinking about this this week. It's kind of a prayer that I, I dared myself to pray. I'm having a, <laughs> still a little fearful of praying it, but I'll give it to you. Here's a scary prayer for us. God, remove any blessings that distract me from rejoicing in you, the gospel, and your work in others. Would you, are you ready for God to answer that prayer? See, the great things of the world, many blessings in our life, they are a loss if they keep us from rejoicing in Christ. But for Paul, his suffering brought him closer to Christ. Because he's going to say this in verse 10, he was getting to share in sufferings like Christ. And, and we'll get there, but that's why you got to lock in today. Suffering can produce and increase joy instead of rob you from joy. The Bible says a lot about it, how you can be joyful when you're sad. There's a big difference between joy and happiness. Happiness comes from getting the things you want. Joy comes from remembering and from knowing with certainty that you have the only one thing that really matters. That's the difference, you know. Happiness rests in the blessings and joy rests in the blesser. Now watch what Paul does immediately from here. Spend a lot of time just to set you up to help you understand what Paul's about to say. So go into verse two. He's gonna show you what the enemy of that joy is. Verse two, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. It's the same group. He's just getting it even stronger each time he says it. Takes a defensive tone. I mean, this is Paul. He's, he's a pastor. He's encouraging what will sustain their faith and he's warning them against what will infect it and destroy it. And the first enemy to true joy, he calls the, the dogs. What he's talking about, hang with me. Here's the, the setup here. He's talking about this group of Jewish Christians who were basically putting a plus sign after Christ when talking about salvation. The Jewish Christians, see, they were already circumcised because circumcision was a Jewish religious tradition. Well, now they've become Christians, right? And there's another group that's become Christians, the Gentiles. And now they're all together in this one brand new thing called the church. And these Jewish Christians were trying to tell the Gentiles that they had to be circumcised like them in order to be true Christians. And it was just a big fat lie. And it was a dangerous one because it would make Christians put false security in their efforts and accomplishments. And Paul says, watch out for these people. These are the ones that will steal the joy that Christ offers you because you'll start to think that your religious efforts are what God needs to accept you. 
that you'll need a resume that says something more than just Jesus on it. And that's a false gospel. In fact, Paul says, no, on the contrary, we, this is verse three, we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the spirit of God, who boast in Christ Jesus and who do not put confidence in the flesh. Paul says, listen, Christians are actually the real circumcision. Over in Romans 2, if you want to look this up for more study, he's going to say true Jews, knocking these Jewish Christians. He said, no, no, true Jews are not the ones who are circumcised outwardly, but who have what he calls a circumcision of the heart. True circumcision is heart change done by the Spirit of God. So when you add works in any form, you're making a claim that Jesus didn't do enough, that his death and resurrection weren't enough for you to now be acceptable to God, that he was insufficient to the task of saving us, and somehow our sin-motivated, sin-clad efforts are going to be what finally gets us there. Y'all, need, you need to hear this. This is something we will not compromise on here at Mercy. Salvation comes by repentance and faith in Christ's death and resurrection alone. Right? That's Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from everybody, not from works, so that no one can boast. And I promise you, those Jewish Christians were not the last group of people to ever try and sneak in religious effort into the system that God has set up where it should only be grace alone by faith alone. Some of you, in fact, come out of those traditions where you've been taught that you have to do certain things in order to be accepted by God. That's not Christianity. Christianity is right there, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Listen, I want to show you the cost of joy Today, there are two sides to it, but first, Paul wants to be very clear that joy costs you nothing. The cost belonged to Jesus. We are recipients of grace, not earners of grace. Verse 3, the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, who boast in Christ Jesus, who do not put confidence in the flesh. He's talking about joy not confidence in our efforts, the true people, of, true people of God constantly rejoice in God, in the gospel, in his work in others. This is why, listen, the longer you walk with Jesus, the more he just kind of becomes your theme. And so others around you are going to notice that, that he is your theme. The more he becomes all you need for acceptance before God and acceptance before others. Because what happens is you start to experience that buoyancy a few times. And you get more and more confident, not in you, not in your religious effort. You get more and more confident in him. I had a um, pastor friend who I was talking to um, last week, and he is uh, he's going through a really hard situation. And there's a guy in his church that's about twice his age. He's my age. And there's a guy in his church about twice his age. And he was talking with this guy about this situation. They were both kind of in it together. And he was just really impressed by this guy and the, the counsel he was giving him. And so he just looks at him at one point. And he goes, man, you just have more faith than me. And the guy shoots back at him. No, 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 no. I just have more experience with a faithful God than you do. Do you, you get the difference between the two of those? See, right now, some of you might be in a trial. You might be suffering. Something might be pushing you down to the point of you wondering if your faith is going to survive 
is your faith going to sink? What I want you to remember is kind of what Jesus says to, um, to a watching crowd. He says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter into it. See, when a child hurts, when they fall down, they, they don't try and get up. We have to train them to do that. When they fall down, they cry and they lift their hands up and they cry out for their daddy to pick them up. And in your pain, Jesus reaches down his Galilean hands to you and he says, let me carry you. And faith, faith, that's just allowing him to carry you. And people that you think are stronger in faith than you, they are ones that have become more familiar with those hands and that are more ready to let him carry them through the storm that they're in. That's the mindset of one who knows God, not one who boasts in their own faith, just in the continued faithfulness of God. And then Paul turns and he says, now listen, if, if we could make a claim based on works, he'd be the curve breaker. I told you we're going to get his resume. Here it is, verse four. Although I have reasons, Paul says, for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. He's saying, look, I've got the pedigree. I'm as pure of a Jew as they come. You can't out-Jewish him any more than you can out-Christmas Buddy the Elf. All right, you can't do it. Buddy knows Santa. Same way. You can't out-Jewish Paul, right? If, if there was any way you could get there by works, Paul says, nobody can touch me. If anybody were going to be acceptable to God based on their resume, it would be Paul. And in light of that, he drops verses 7 through 10 which we're going to sit in for a few minutes. Verse seven, but everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. I think what I want you to hear in this is that Paul, this is real for Paul. This is not him speaking hyperbolically. This is his recounting his personal story and what's happened to him. In terms of religious and social equity, Paul was elite of elite. So he tallies up everything. And before Christ, before he ever got to, to know Christ, these things had made him great gains. But then he meets Christ on a road to Damascus, on his way to persecute more Christians. And everything changes when he meets Jesus. Jesus says to him, I'm the one true God. I died for your sins. You need to follow me. In fact, I'm now going to send you to go preach the very gospel you've been persecuting. And Paul believes, and he receives this new life in Christ, received this commission. And then after that, it's not that Paul went crazy. It's that he encountered the one true God. And in doing so, he instantly realized the things that he thought would float him, the resume, were actually sinking him all along. So he let go of them all so that he could grab hold of Christ. Now that he knew what his, that his worth was in Christ, that his hope was there, those other things were lost to him. 
a burden he threw aside. So I have to ask you, what are you rejoicing in today? What are you celebrating and finding your worth in today? See, a resume, like Paul is um, presenting here, what is it? A resume at its core is an argument. It's an argument for acceptance, right? I mean, think about uh, when you apply to college, right? The doors to college are shut. You apply, and if your application, if your resume is good enough, then they will accept you. They will open the doors for you. Same thing with a job, right? You put in your resume, and if you have enough credentials, the doors will open and you'll be able to work there. Same for friendships. A little bit less formal, but you dress a certain way, you watch certain shows, you act like you like certain music, right? And then the doors to friendship start to open up. Same for romance. Maybe not a resume. I mean, I guess if you're online dating, you have like a profile. But, you know, like, either way, you're trying to say, I'm attractive enough, I have enough earning potential, I'm responsible enough, and you're hoping that the doors to a relationship will open. You even do it with yourself, right? Your resume is why you allow yourself to feel good about yourself. In verse 3, Paul calls his resume his confidence, what he puts confidence in, and that gets down to the heart. We all put confidence in something for acceptance, right? I mean, we do. We all put confidence in something for acceptance. You know, the way you know what it is, it's the thing that allows you to take criticism, but still feel good about yourself, right? Like you can attack me over here because I still feel good about myself over here. So I can handle the attack over here because I'm still good because of what I have over here. But when criticism comes at the basis of what you find your acceptance in, then you panic. Then you start to drown. Y'all, I've learned that there are some things that you can attack me on and I'm gonna be okay, right? If you, you, you criticize my taste in music, I'm gonna be okay, right? Criticize my looks, some other things, I'm gonna be okay. But when you criticize, you just may, even if I sense it, when I say like open, even if I sense criticism or I sense that I'm failing as a dad or failing as a pastor, I panic. I start to drown. And I know I do this because when things go poorly at church, I sink. And when things go well, well, then I start to float. And Courtney could be the one that would tell you that really easily. My mood is so often dictated by church because I'm rejoicing more in my identity as a church leader than I am as my, as, than in rejoicing in my identity in Christ. How much when that happens am I missing out on what Christ has for me? I mean, do I really need your approval that much? Your approval cannot float me. And if I keep trying to find joy there, I'm going to be sinking, and I don't even realize it. And that's a loss to me. When I try and find joy there, that's a loss to me, what Paul is saying, because it's keeping me from knowing and rejoicing in Christ. So what is it for you? Is it maybe the blessing of good health? Maybe you're you're a health nut or whatever you want to call it. You exercise a whole lot and that's like you're everything. Listen, eventually your health will fail you. Maybe it's a relationship. You're longing for a relationship. That guy, that girl one day will disappoint you. It's guaranteed. Maybe it's personal success, professional success. It will be, it can be taken away. There's a song we sometimes sing here in our worship services called, My Worth is Not in What I Own. I'll give you the chorus up here. I was thinking about this week. I rejoice in my Redeemer. Greatest 
treasure, wellspring of my soul. I rejoice in him and no other. Right? I'm going to trust him and no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. The most fundamental human need is the need for acceptance. And all of us find it somewhere. Is your soul, we sing that song, we sing that lyric, but is your soul satisfied in knowing Christ? That's where joy is going to come from, and that's what Paul's trying to get us towards. Look at verse 8. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He's expanding beyond his own past, and now he's saying, look, anything present or future that might compete with his allegiance to Christ, it's a loss. Anything that would try to step into the place of Christ and give him identity, give him worth, give him value, it's a loss, not a gain. And not only that, I love this, I count it as loss as I look at the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. You see, in this sense, Paul is saying that joy will actually cost you everything. So I said earlier, joy costs you nothing. Joy also costs you everything. To which you say, is it nothing or everything? Well, it's both. Because it costs you your everything. It costs surrendering all that you think is bringing you joy so that Christ can be your only thing. And when you finally get to where he's your only thing, you'll know a love so powerful that everything you had will be as nothing to you. This is my prayer today for you. Paul knew Jesus, how good and how valuable and desirable he is. You think about just reading through the Gospels, how he was ultimate kindness, kindness in perfection, how he is holy, how he has the power to heal. He's the God that created the universe and still reached down and cared for each individual, for the poor and the oppressed, and how he had such great love over them, and yet he was the one who was the king and ruler of the universe. Paul got to know this Jesus. And when you put that Jesus on one end of the scale and everything else on the other, everything else just has no weight to it. In chapter one of this letter, he wanted the Philippians to, know, to grow in their knowledge and, and insight of God. This is what he means, to know the person of Jesus, to grow in the insight of what he did for us. And when you do, it leads to this deepening of your own affection for and love for Christ. And that's where you're going to find sustaining unparalleled joy. Right here, this is the place I feel like I need to summarize what I think is an important tone in the Christian life. Sometimes Christians, we can get into this mindset where we're simply trying to follow the do's and don'ts of our religion, kind of as if Jesus is the right way and the other things would be the wrong way, which makes a lot of Christians think about Jesus the same way they think about broccoli, right? I mean, when you start to think about it, like I've got broccoli and I've got chocolate, well, these little trees are the right way, right? So I'll eat them, but, you know, that's the, that would be better, but this will be right. So I'll choose what is right instead of what is better. And that's the way a lot of Christians approach their faith. Now, while Paul is acknowledging that, yes, Jesus is the right way, he's saying when I compare everything in this world to Christ, it's not just that he is right or correct. It's that Christ 
really is better. He has proven to be better tasting to my soul than anything else could. And that's where true joy comes from. It comes when Christ is not only the right way, but when he is also the better way. Do you know Christ? Have you experienced yet Christ to be better than other things? Have you trusted him in those moments? Those moments where things are going to start to wage, there's this war that goes on, Christian, between you and the things that feel like they might be better and between what Christ tells you to do, and you follow him in such a way that you experience that he is better to your soul. He nourishes your soul in a way that other things never will. That again, that he carries you. Have you experienced that? That he's genuinely better than anything else. Then you'll be able to say what Paul says, because of him, I've suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. Because of Christ, because of changing his allegiances, y'all, he lost everything. He suffered. He went from top of the social social circle, right, to being this like outsider who was an enemy of the state. What loss, we could say. Yet Paul says all those degrees, all those accolades at work, those things that gave me confidence, that made me acceptable to others, they are dung. Scubula is the word. Better translated crap, because that's what he's saying here, right? He's saying it's all that much, that worthless, because I found a better source for acceptance. I found that in Christ. And what did he find in Christ? Look at verses 9 and 10. To be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. First thing, he's going to show it again in 10 and 11, other things that he found. Verse 9, he found righteousness. Righteousness is the Bible's way of saying he was accepted by God. Righteousness, that's accepted by the righteous one, God. And you get it by trading your resume for Jesus' resume. Right? He is the one who lived the life that you and I should have lived, the perfect life that we didn't. We rebelled and rejected God. But then Jesus went and died the death that we should have died as a punishment for our sins. His life becomes ours, and he gets our punishment. We get righteousness. Verse 10, there's more. My goal now, Paul says, is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Look at that. What else does he get? He gets knowledge of God. Once Paul knew God, once he got there, knowing Christ, he didn't need to work on his own resume anymore. He says, look, I don't need that anymore. I've come to know the one thing that I was looking for my whole life. I used to think that I'd be happy by putting myself above others, right? By showing, distinguishing myself above others because then I would be acceptable. He says, no, I've traded all that in because I've been accepted by the one who is already above all others. And that's God himself. He says he now knows the power of the resurrection. See, resume building is a way to try and secure power to control our lives. Paul traded all that in because he found real life-giving power in the resurrection of Christ. 
It's the power of the resurrection that allows us, the only thing that allows us to do what Christ calls his followers to do. This is Luke 9. Christ looks out at his followers. He said, listen, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. How do you do that? You do that when you realize there's no power in your life, right? You deny your life. that's not worth anything. You lose yourself into his. He gets assurance of future hope, that resurrection from among the dead. He's talking about the end of days. He's talking about eternity. We get to spend it with God in heaven. It's all, look, at the end of all days, it's all going to work out. There's great assurance for him there. Isn't that what we want? All this stuff in 9 and 10 and 11, isn't that what we want in this life? Acceptance by someone? Knowledge of the one true thing we're created for? Power for real life change? Hope that things are going to work out in the end? Listen, the deepest quests in your life have been a search for Christ. All of them. And Paul says, I found it all. I found it all in Christ. So everything else, everything else is lost. Everything else is dung. It's worthless. In fact, he goes further to say that he wants to know the fellowship of his sufferings and be conformed to his death. So I want you to see here, Paul could find joy in suffering now because it actually allowed him to know more of God. It wasn't an inhibitor to knowing God. It was now an access point by which he got to know God more. It's not that pain or loss didn't hurt. Of course it did. We're not talking about happiness. But the loss of good things forced him to lean more into the one ultimate thing. That's why some of you need to pray that prayer I talked about. God, remove any blessings that keep me from rejoicing in you. Right? Rejoicing in the gospel and your work in others. Because when you're rejoicing in Christ, pain starts to take on a new role. Pushing you closer to Jesus instead of further from him. This is the theology of suffering that so many Christians are missing. And you'll never really know him, the full joy he has for you, until you share in his sufferings. Y'all, I want you to know Christ. I want you to know him. That's That's the motivation behind everything we call you to here as a church. And we got this Christmas missions offering that we're doing right now. But the heart behind that is, is that your financial, it's that we believe that everybody to the ends of the earth needs to hear the gospel. And so we take up this offering where none of it stays in the walls of our ministries and all just goes out. But the heart behind calling you to that is not because our church needs money. It's because you finding your acceptance, your security, and how, how much your bank account has risen up, that's dunk. Are you get that? You finding your security there, it's a lie. You're not actually secure there. And an offering where you give it away is you releasing that, counting that as loss so that you might gain the joy of Christ, even if it means some form of financial suffering for a moment. So I call you to share the gospel with someone who's far from God, but close to you. It's because in case you find your acceptance in other people thinking that you're a pretty normal person, that's not going to be one of those out there crazy people, and you find your approval and acceptance in what others think about you, that when you find your approval there, that's dung. There's nothing for you there. And we want to help you to see that when you count that as a loss, you'll be able to know Christ who was rejected by everyone around him. There's great joy for you and sharing in the sufferings of Christ and everything, everything we call you towards is to try and help you know more 
of the glory of God when you give everything you have to Christ. What do you do with all this? Well, my prayer is, and I've been praying all week, is that some of you will have some kind of warning lights going off in your soul. You know, like if you have them, like a car, you know, you got the little dashboard warning lights goes off. Your soul has those as well. Here's some, some of them. One of them stress, right? When you're stressing about your circumstances, what you're doing there is you're worrying about your own righteousness, about your acceptability before God and others. That's not going to save you. Maybe you're dealing with worry, stresses, twin brother. You're unsure about the future. That's because you're unsecure in who you are in Christ. Maybe you're sensitive to criticism. That's because deep down, you're insecure about what God says about you. Maybe you're dealing with jealousy. That's because you feel like you have to be superior to others to feel like you are worth something. It's not going to hold you up. It's not going to float you. Maybe it's even your own faith. Your Christianity feels like a duty. Like you're struggling. You're just kind of doing what's right instead of what's better. It means you just don't know the value of Christ yet. You got a warning light going off? Listen to it. Maybe there's multiple of them. Listen to them. See, life without Jesus, it's a life of seeking but not finding. And that's what's happening when these warning lights are, are going off. It's a life of unfulfillment and fear. And when we die, we'll learn why. Right? You were made for God. The God who will carry you, the God who will float you, who will sustain your joy because you were created to be sustained by his joy. And when you die, you'll meet that God. And if you haven't given your life to Christ, you'll meet him, but you'll see that you've refused him. And right then you'll find out that all of your goodness, all of your efforts, all of your works weren't good enough. They should have been a loss. You'll find that you were a sinner whose only way to be accepted by God and to have life eternal was to allow those hands to reach down and save you and to carry you. It's not too late to do that now. Let me pray for you. God, I pray that you would be enough. That you would be more than enough for us. I pray for the men and women in this room that are suffering right now. God, I pray and I beg you, would they let the guard down a little bit? Bring the wall down, Father. Would they see this as a moment where they can know you more? Because it's not the strength of their faith. It's the strength of their God that will carry them. Oh, God, I pray that you would give that in your kindness to the men and women suffering right now. As we're praying, if you don't know Christ as your Savior this way, you can receive that salvation that he offers now. Remember, you don't earn it. You receive it. And this way, it costs you nothing. Christ died for your sins and Simple prayer to, to God to receive that gift of salvation would be, I admit that I'm a sinner. Thank you, God, for saving me. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. So I'm turning from my sins and I'm trusting 
in his work on the cross, in his resurrection. I believe. Thank you, God. Christian, what blessings come to mind that are distracting you from joy in Christ? Would you confess those to him now? God, we want to be a people of joy, overwhelming joy. May we fix our eyes and hearts on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, and with joy run ahead.